0: Because here we have a chance again to open it up and study from it and to learn more about Him. So I encourage you to join me in Psalm 46 if you're not already there. Your bookmark might already be sitting in this spot. Psalm 46. We've been on this now. This is our fourth week studying the psalm and I have it scheduled for five. So next week we will finish. Even though you're going to say, but Pastor, you finished all the verses today. Um, We're going from verse number 8 all the way through verse number 11 this morning. And then next week I want to spend one more week on this passage before we move on to another study. Psalm 46. Follow along as I read. uh, Psalm 46, 8 through 11. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Lord, we have your word before us again with the privilege of learning more about you. I pray that you help us today, for even some areas that we look at are not easy to understand, but they are what you have recorded. So help us to grasp what we need to know, and apply it to such a way that our lives praise you, in the simple fact that we trust you. And I thank you for all that. In Jesus' name, amen. These are interesting verses. Maybe something you've seen before in the book of Psalms and never really took the time to look at them because we kind of scan through the Psalms. I don't know, maybe we is not the right word. Maybe it's just me. (laughs) scan through the Psalms and look for those little verses that kind of pop up, you know, and say, oh, that's a great verse, or I should have that one written down, or I should memorize that one or such. But when we get into a passage like verse 8 and 9 here, we say, well, okay. What's that mean? It sounds simplistic. When he talks about wars and how he causes them to cease and, breaking bows and burning chariots and things like that. You say, well, this is Hillsdale. We don't have any of those right here. How does this apply? What what am I going to glean from this? I want to show you a couple of things here from this passage I think are, are really very helpful for us where we are. The whole passage I've been using, verse number 10, as our main statement. Cease striving be still, be quiet, stop, and know that I am God. I've turned that around a few weeks ago and I said, see, striving to know that you're not God. And that's a good thing to know too. But when you see these phrases, I am God, you might come with a preconceived notion of what that's all about. And then when he shows you more of himself, you might say, wait a minute, I wasn't expecting that. He is God. And it's an amazing study to understand his full character, his actions, and such like that. That's what this passage is calling us to do. And yet it's in reference to those who fight against him. That's why he says, stop. Because they aren't following through and knowing Him and trusting Him. I gave you three words in the last couple of weeks. They're the stanzas of this study. In verses 1 through 3, trust regardless. Trust regardless. I mean, things change, don't they? Worlds fall apart. That's what he was mentioning in the couple of verses there. Things change, but trust regardless. Then we went into stanza number two. And that was last week when we went through verse four through seven. And that's trust rehearsed. We have to keep repeating it. We have to keep going over it. We have to remember who is this God (laughs) who we're told to trust. And there's many places we went last week to remember him. The very fact that he is with us is something, sometimes we we have trouble remembering. But that's woven all the through Scripture, isn't it? He is with us, isn't He? Yes, He is. He's with us now, isn't He? Yes, He is. Trust rehearsed. Today, trust required. Do you like that word, required? I know some people, you say required, they step back. <laughs> they say, uh-uh, you don't require anything of me. I make my own decisions. There are some people like that. When you say required, they will go the opposite, on purpose. Because they don't like to be required of anything. I use that word on purpose today. I used it on purpose. I want to ask you something, and I've done this before, and I think you already know the answer. What does a command expect? I heard a lot of answers out there. None of them were uh, well, obedience is the word, right? A command requires obedience. What if you don't obey? It's disobedience. That's not hard science, is it? That's the simple, simple statement we're going to work with from these passages here today. 8 through 11. Say, or trust is required. It's required. Now I've got to prove it. Alright. Come behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. The works of the Lord are being described here. He started with the statement in verse number 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That is not a debatable passage. That's not a maybe. That's not I hope so. That's not every now and then. God is, is the way it starts. That's a statement of who he is. Now what we see in these verses is a statement of what he does. God's works are set before you. And it's a good thing that we not only have a statement of who he is, but a statement of what he does. Because we need both. That's what human beings need. You say, I'm going to do this, then do it. Because then your works show what you have stated about your actions or what you plan to do. God says, I am this, and his works prove it. And I think that's a very important thing because after all, we even know, as James writes, what is faith without works? It's dead. you have to have the evidence that it exists, right? We have evidence in verses 8 through 11 that our God is our refuge, our strength, our very present help in time of need. That's what we're going to look at today because there's a response response required of that. And that's in verse 10. So, cease striving. Stop. Be still. Rest in that fact. Stop fighting against him. Stop fighting against him. Know that he is God. Know it. That's an experience too. Know it by experience. See what he has done. Investigate it. Watch it. Learn from it. Pass it on. Those are the things we've learned so far. So when we get to verse 8 through 11, folks, I've been telling you verse number 10 is a command. But there are actually four commands in our passage today. From 8 through 11, there are four commands there. At first, when I started studying it, I was just going with my assumptions, which isn't right. I teach people in hermeneutics don't do that, but I did it. Um, And my assumption was, oh, there's three commands here. And then the fourth one popped up, and I said, Oh, why did I miss that one? It's real simple. You could probably even identify them for me too, can't you? Verse number eight. Do you see a command? Come. Do you see a second command? See! Behold! That's the one I missed when I went through it the first time. I said, come. Okay, I'm going to build my whole sermon around come. And then suddenly it was see. And I said, oh, I don't want to miss that one either. Those two commands, and then verse number 10 has the other two commands. Cease striving and know. So we're going to give special emphasis today in verse number 8. These first two commands. Come and see. Come and and see. Now, come sounds like an invitation, doesn't it? We use come in modern logic. We would suggest that that if there's an invitation, there's an optional reply. People want you to commit to wedding ceremonies or receptions or uh, certain kind of parties or stuff, and so they send you out an invitation, and it has that little funny card that says... R-S-V-P. And that simply means, surprise us. (laughs) No, it does not mean that. (laughs) That means, we want to know if you're coming or not. It's French, and I can't even pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try. I won't make believe I can say French words. It means to, to let us know you're coming, or you're not coming, because... We're going through the expense of setting up the food and, and renting the room or setting up tables and making it all nice and everything. And we want to know if you're going to be here. So there's an expectation with the little RSVP card. That's what we expect. We expect a response. We, we would like that. Matter of fact, it really means this is the transliteration of the whole word respond if you please. Respond if you please. That does not spell out R S V P. That's the French words, right? It's just good manners to let people know you're coming. But this is not the invitation. Just simply to let you decide if you're coming or not. The word you see in verse eight is a imperative. We call that a command. It's an imperative. And like you just showed me in your response, imperatives demand obedience. And if we don't obey, then we have disobeyed. It's that simple. Come is what he says. Now, I had to dig up the Hebrew word come just to know, is that just a general come, or what, what kind of come is that? And... and uh You know what? When I looked it up, there were like 30 different definitions for the word come. All from the same word, really. And the essence of it was, walk this way. Walk this way. Come. Come. Enter. Uh, When I turned it into the Greek, I I do that all the time. I go to the Old Testament, the Greek version, the Septuagint, and I looked it up because I know those words a little bit better. And that word means, come here. It's a word you've used for your kids so many times, so many years. Come here. What does that suggest? You better get over there, right? Come here. And that doesn't mean mom and dad's coming looking for you. They mean you get over here. Right here where I'm at. Come here. That's the word you're looking at. That's an interesting word. I know that God comes and seeks us. I love that about him. I love that he comes. And matter of fact, Scripture says, wherever we go, he knows where we are. Matter of fact, he's here. So we can't escape his presence anyway. But what I like about this word is, he's not saying, I'm coming to you. He says, you come here. Come here. He wants to show us something. It's all in reference to the fact that we're fighting him. We're resisting, whatever it is. That's why he told us to stop. In verse number 10. But here's the command that goes with it. Come here. It's spoken with authority. It's spoken with a sense of urgency as well. He's not just giving you an option, obviously. It's, like I said, it's a term we use for immediate obedience from children. Come here. Come here. Now, hold that word for a minute, and let's look at the second word, and put them together. Behold. Some of our texts have the word see, or behold, in verse number 8. It says in the New American Standard, I mean verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord. Behold. That's a command. It means to gaze at it. Now, it's a little more than just open your eyeballs and look. All right? We do that all the time. We look at things. Sometimes we could do that without our brains, right? Well, the brains are part of it. But we're not thinking. We're just staring at something. We're just, you know, glancing at it. We see that it happened or, or whatever. You know, somebody had a hat on or somebody's car was blue or something like that. We just casual things. We don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. We certainly don't contemplate why it's blue when it drives by. Maybe you do. I don't know. But you see things and you just assume, no, oh, it's blue, and you go on. This is a different kind of a word in that sense that it means to contemplate, to, to perceive it. And here's what's interesting about it. It has attached to it this concept, with pleasure. Behold, with pleasure. In other words, it's something you want to do. And it's not something you're going to just move past fast. You want to give it your attention. You want to look at it more intently. You probably wouldn't be surprised to know that most of the time this word is used in poetical passages in Scripture. It shows up a lot in Psalms and things like that. But here's one that I find very interesting. It is used in the Song of Solomon, too. It's the more personally desired look. It finds delight in looking. It feasts its eyes upon the thing it's looking at. Do you think that's interesting that God calls on that word as a command especially look on your page look at verse number 8 the second half look at verse number 9 do those themes of destruction and war and such like that cause you to say oh I love looking at these things I delight in them more times than not we turn our eyes away from things like this don't we He said, that's not what I thought. I thought, why don't God, why don't you use it more with verse 4, where there's a beautiful river. Ah, I'd love to look at that all day long. Lord, how about let's talk about your holy dwelling places and the streams in the city. Oh, I'd love to just gaze on that all day long. Give me a, a, a job. Give me a command to look with pleasure upon your dwelling places. Instead, He says, look with pleasure at this. Look what I've done with that war. Look what I've done with that chariot. Look what I've done with that bow. It's not the view we were expecting. But the command is there, isn't it? Come and see. Come and stare at this. Give it prominence in your mind. Discern it carefully. Look at it with pleasure. Say, okay. Alright. There's some reasons why. Let's walk through them. But let's see what he's doing here in this context. Verse number 8. He wrought desolations in the earth. Now, didn't we have a cause for trouble? There's some sort of fight, conflict going on here. We're thrashing about in the scene of something here. And in verse number one, it highlights he's our refuge, he's our strength, he's our very present help in trouble. We say, okay, there's trouble here. What is the trouble? The mountains, the earth, things are changing. They're slipping into the sea. The waters are roaring and foaming. The mountains are quaking. There's enemies out there. Verse number six, the enemies, the nations are making an uproar. The kingdoms are tottering. That sounds like a lot of chaos. And God is looking down upon that and he sees us in the midst of this swirl of trouble. And he sees what we're doing about it. In our great wisdom and strength, we're going to fight it all off, aren't we? We thrash about, we try to solve it ourselves and nothing but a drowning man. God says, stop. Stop. Don't you remember who I am? Don't you know what I could do? I want you to come over here right now and look right now at what I just did. Didn't he solve the problem? Look again at those verses. Eight nine. Isn't that the problem solved? If the nations were uproaring, if there were wars coming your way, guess what he did? He eliminated it. Didn't he? Didn't he just take out the war? The weapons are gone. The bows are broken. The chariots are burnt with fire. Most of us are saying, like, Woo! What a relief! God says, Look at my works. I want you to contemplate this. I want you to look at this. You're looking upon the remnants of the enemy. You looked out the window earlier and you saw the nation surrounded you. You were upset by them. They caused you panic. You started to plan. You started to work to figure it out your way. We forgot who he is. Interesting phrase to follow in Scripture. Come and see. When I saw those two words side by side like that, come and see, I said, no, I've seen that before. Anyone who's read through Scripture has seen those phrases put together like that before. And I said, well, where would we go to see come and see? You know, the time of Christ when He was born, we speak of the the Jews who have really walked away from the truth. We have some pretty dark ages there. They had walked away from the truth of Scripture and they were inundated with the teaching of the Pharisees. They had rules They had regulations, they had religion, but they did not have faith. It was rare to find a man of faith. A few examples here and there, but faith was lacking in those crowds. Faith was lacking in the multitudes. Jesus came into a faithless world, for the most part. It was dark here. Scripture said so, that they lived in darkness. They walked in darkness. And God sent a great light. That's the world he stepped into. Men and women who followed a religion, because they did the practice of the ritual and the sacrifice and all the other things, they were going through the motions, but they didn't know God. 1 John chapter 1 makes that very clear. They did not know God. Matter of fact, when God did send his son, they did not receive him. But in the midst of that picture, I find this kind of interesting. Not only didn't they know God, but they followed a set of religious rules. They, in a sense, and I'm going to assume this because of what I've seen, they thought it was okay to doubt God. There was an entire branch of leaders among them called Sadducees that didn't believe anything, it seemed. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in after life. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't, the, on and on and on. They didn't believe it. And that was some of their leaders. They were taught that way. You didn't have to believe. You could still be an influential man in their day and age. On top of that, they were in bondage to Rome. My folks, if we go back and look at these people, I don't think any of us would have said, I wish I lived back then. That was a tough spot to be in. They questioned God's word. And as John starts to write 1 John, or John, chapter number 1, it says that they lived in darkness. They were promised a Messiah, but they hardly believed it. And God sent Him into the world. Go over to John chapter 1 with me now, because I set you up for this. I want to show you something. John chapter 1 verse number 38 Jesus has begun his ministry John the Baptist was the witness of who Jesus was John the Baptist was declaring Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and such like that He had a handful of disciples himself and two of them one was named James and one was named John would listen to John the Baptist speak. And it says in verse 35, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him speak this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them saying, uh, uh, saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, Come, and you will see. That's interesting, isn't it? Come, and you will see. They were curious. Now, because they had already started to follow him, they wanted much more than just saying, Hey, what's your address? To say, where are you staying, meant that they wanted to stay too. They wanted time with Him. Jesus looked at them and said, Come. Come here. And see. An invitation. You can't resist. A command. He told them to come. I said, okay, I saw that one. And then later in the chapter, in John chapter 1, start in verse number uh, 44. 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, we just found the Messiah. Nathanael says to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Does that sound like a positive answer or response? No. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says what? Come and see. Come and see. Just one little phrase. Come and see. Now, did that change anybody's life? Nathaniel's it did. Philip's it did. If you go through the chapter, Peter's a part of the story, Andrew's a part of the story, James is a part of the story, John's a part of the story. Jesus would say, Come. Come and see. Come and see. And they had the privilege of being with him, seeing what he could do, the works of the Lord. They witnessed it. Come and see. You know what? You wouldn't know it unless you came. Thus you saw. That was his invitation. Come and see. Come and see. Now, jump over to chapter 11. This is an interesting, interesting twist a bit on the words. But in chapter number 11, Lazarus died. A friend of Jesus. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, dear friends of his. Lazarus has died. Matter of fact, Jesus did not go. Immediately, to see him he waited several days matter of fact it was the fourth day by the time he showed up remember the story you know how the story goes Jesus came to town ladies met him out there they told him you're too late Lazarus is dead Jesus goes and tells him but I'm the resurrection and the life and then says don't you believe your brother's going to live and I said well, of course he will I love that Jesus took him down to the cemetery, and what happened? He called out Lazarus. Love the story. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing that happened to you. But this is what's interesting in this chapter. In John 11, verse 34, it says something so simple. And he says, Jesus says, where have you laid him? And guess what their answer was? come and C. They didn't just say, oh yeah, he's down three miles down the street. We've got a cemetery down there. Remember, it was way over there. Uh, he's over there. He's about the 16th plot over on the left, I think. Past that little tree. We could do that in our cemetery, past the tree, because we only have one really out there. But you could say, okay, over to the left of the tree. They, they, they didn't do it that way. They said something rather profound, I think. Come! see Jesus went you know the rest of the story what if the invitation was something less than that what if Jesus didn't go come and see after all the ministry was there to the ladies right the ministry was that that's where all the weeping people were they invited him out to the cemetery i just this is what I find interesting and this is the point I really, really want to stress here. In every case, I find this set of words, come and see, the story changes. The story changes on the other side of that command. Come and see. The stories change. Lives change. People came. People saw. Jesus came. Jesus saw. And things were never the same again. I say, wow, just a simple thing. But what would have changed if they hadn't come? Or if they hadn't seen? We were talking the other night, Wednesday night, in our group here in, in uh, the fellowship hall. We meet on Wednesday nights here for prayer, our group. And we were studying through Matthew. And John was leading us through Matthew chapter 2. The wise men came to Jerusalem the wise men were proclaiming and seeking the king of the Jews. And they're there in the presence of, of Herod. And all the scribes and all the wise men and you know of, of the religious groups and such like that. And they're asking, where is this Christ to be born? And they said, well, it says in Scripture, it's to be in the city of Bethlehem and on and on and on. And we were making this statement here. Why didn't they go? Calculating it. It was six miles. Wow, you can't even make it to Carrier at that rate. Six miles. And they never went to sea. The wise men went. Herod did not. The scribes did not. The religious leaders did not. They did not go and see. Why? It didn't fit their agenda. There was a threat to them. They had their little spiritual niche. And they didn't want that upset by something else or someone else. They had their kingdom set up. They had stubborn, disobedient hearts. They were rebellious. They did not respond to the things of God. Though they had His word right in front of them. And they could tell you verse and chapter. They had hard hearts. And when the command was given, they said... No. No. Won't go. Won't look. I always find that to be a remarkable thing. That's no different, by the way, than what I've seen in other passages. Here's another one for you. Jump back to Psalm again, the book of Psalms, chapter 66 this time. I'm going to show you something else as we go down this road. You're going to start to say, Okay, Pastor, this is quite different than what we were expecting, and that's the exact point. I did tell you that at the start, right? Okay, so, in Psalm 66, in verse number 5, we're going to see the phrase, Come and see the works of God. right. Now, I want to put the context around that for you, because the caption above my study Bible says, How awesome are your deeds? How awesome are your deeds. You're supposed to start with verse 1. Shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, How awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give, now this is what the New American says, will give feigned obedience. Now if you're the King James, you'll see, uh, something about submitting themselves. Or if you have the NIV, you have, they will cringe before you. I thought, interesting. The Amplified Version says, with feigned and reluctant obedience. <laughs> what is that? They don't want to do it, but they have to. God is great. Mankind, mankind cannot stand in his presence and say, I won't bow. I won't give you glory. They can't do that. They go through the motions and it might mean that their heart's not in it. He says, that's what the enemies are doing. Verse number four. All the earth will worship you and will sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Then there's that word, Selah. Come and see, verse five, the works of God, who is awesome in His deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They pass through the river on foot. There, let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Mark these words. I'm going to use C words, okay? S-E-E kind of words. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life. I love that little phrase. He keeps us in life. And does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. Why would he do that? I thought he got us out of the net. It says he brought us into the net. You laid oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through the fire. We went through the water. Why? Because God was mad at them and thought, Boy, I'm going to teach them. I'm going to teach them for that. What was he teaching them? Five letters, starts with a T, ends with a T. Aha! Aha! Trust me. You brought us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows with my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts With the smoke of rams I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Salah. Come and Hear. I think that's a cool combination. Come and hear all who fear God and I will tell of what He has done for my soul. Stop right there. When's the last time you told anybody what God has done for your soul? This is the response, folks. Have you not seen what He has done for you? Is there not a testimony in your life of his work in your life. Now, some people have pretty tough things that they can talk about. But in most cases, and I'm going to say anyone here who's a believer, God has brought you out by just saving you alone. And then all the other added benefits of keeping your life, keeping your life, keeping your life. I know he's done it because you're still here. You have a testimony. Look what he's done for my soul. After you have come to see, then you turn around and say to others, come and hear about what I saw. This is the testimony of the psalmist. Come and see what, come and hear what God has done for me. I take you just on to verse 20. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor His loving kindness from me. That's what I see. Come and see the works of God. He's awesome. His eyes keep watch on those nations. He keeps me in life. Come in here. All you who fear God, come in here and I would tell you what He's done for my soul. Okay. Okay. There's a little bit dark place in that psalm, but we turn around and give God glory, don't we? Even though there were tough spots there, God gets the glory. Come and see. Come and see. Alright? I'll take you into a tougher spot. It's in Isaiah chapter 66. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 66. It's the last chapter of the book. So if you're in Jeremiah, just back up till you get there. Isaiah chapter 66. I have to confess several things. Number one, this is a hard chapter. And there are some verses in it that are just puzzles beyond words. I pull up all my little commentary friends and I say, what does this mean? And I've got every different answer from every single book. And I look up words and I say, I don't get it. And I I puzzle over some of these passages. But I'll give you the essence of it, and I think that's the best thing to notice. But verse number 18, verse 18 is what I'm going to focus on especially. For I know their works and their thoughts, the time is coming together all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. This is written from God's perspective. Thus says the Lord. It starts in chapter number, uh, verse number 1. Watch what it says. He's awesome, right? His works are great, right? You know that? Watch what happens. Thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you can build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hands made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. He will get my attention. But, now he turns his attention to another group. Not to the one who wants to follow the Lord, or be with the Lord, or acknowledge the Lord. He turns his attention to another group. He says, but he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. And he who sacrifices the lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. And he who offers a grain offering is like the one who offers swine's blood. Does this sound pretty to you? You know what he's saying. He's saying there are those who come and burn incense. When all the while they're blessing an idol. They're going through the motions of religion. He says, but your sacrifice, your sacrifice, you're killing an ox and the law says kill the ox. But he says, well, you might as well just kill a man for all I care. You're bringing your sheep to have them slaughtered for sacrifice. He says, to me it's no different than if you went out and killed your neighbor's dog. He says, you're giving me some sort of green offering on my altar, but it smells like swine's blood as far as I'm concerned. Now, does that sound very nice? No. Because he's looking at these people who delight their souls in abominations. It says at the end of verse number three, as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I choose their punishment." I will bring on them what they dread because I called but no one answered I spoke but they did not listen they did evil in my sight chose that in which I did not delight now the rest of the chapter goes through that I'm not going to go through all the parts and pieces of this chapter but I want to move you down to verse number 15 Watch these words. See if they sound like Psalm 46. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by His sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens. This is not complimentary, by the way. This seems to be idolatrous. They're heading off to some garden or grove or some forest place where they can follow one after the other, follow one in the center or something like that. They go there to eat swine's flesh and detestable things and mice. Sounds like a wonderful picnic, doesn't it? They're out there in this grove. They're doing everything detestable they possibly can in the sight of God. And they call that worship. And they will come to an end altogether declares the Lord for I know their works verse 18 and their thoughts the time is coming together all nations and tongues and they will come and see my glory what is his glory here the execution of judgment he says this verse number 22. I'm skipping a few thoughts, but verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I made will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. He's talking about Israel, and it will come about, and it shall be from new moon to moon, new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look. They will go and see what the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. you know what I thought when I read that verse? This sounds very unpleasant. But he's talking about after, in context, he's talking about after the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to dwell in righteousness. We're going to be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. There's no more earth, no more sin, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's all new. But there's one group still living. Who are they? Besides the believers. Who are they? The unsaved. Against where they're staying. In the lake of fire. Against what they're doing. They're in torment for the rest of eternity. And that sounds frightful, doesn't it? God says, come and look and see my works. Now I want to ask you this. How can you see a scene like that and say, wow, that makes me really excited. I look at this with delight. Isn't that a hard thing to reconcile? That's a real hard thing to reconcile. I read through that, and I read through that, and I read through that, and I said, Wow, Lord, is this what you're saying? Put it all together. If you love the Lord, and you seek the Lord, you heard Him say, Come, and you came. And He said, Look with pleasure on my works. And you've done that. Don't just look at part of His works. He is God. See? See? He is God. All of His works proclaim His glory. I don't know how all those pieces fit. But I do know this. He deserves a praise. Stop fighting Him. Stop fighting Him. No. He is God. I do know this much. There are a lot of things in life that don't make sense. You know that too. And we wonder at times when we set it all up, theologically even, how God is going to answer to that. I don't know if you ever say it that way. Probably not. But you say, how is he going to acknowledge it? What is, what is going to be the answer for that? I'm going to tell you it simply this way. God always does what's right. Always does what's right. That's all he does. He does what is right. And someday when we stop and we see it, We're going to say, that was right. That was right. Come and see, he said. Come and see. And stop fighting. And know that he is God. I took you over a few minutes. Is that okay? You didn't have much of a choice, but Heavenly Father, we need to talk about you. And about how great you are. And Lord, sometimes we pick only three or four colors out of the box when we color our description of You. When You cover so much more because You are God, there are passages and places that kind of scare us. Places that quiet us, humble us. Places that make us nervous. Places that make us stop in our track and we're speechless. In the display of who you are. But Lord, we're told to stop and know that you are God. And I am so glad I know who you are. Not that I know everything about you, but I know you're the God who loves me. And you've done great things for my soul. You've brought me to this place in life where you keep me. And you have a place designed for me where I will dwell with you forever and ever and ever, and I thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for that. I delight in what you have done. I delight in who you are, even when it mystifies me to understand the full picture. And I pray this morning, Lord, for most of us here, we have a week before us, and there might be some mysterious things come along that we don't know the answers to, we might be prone to turn in some way against you and question you and, and even rebel in some degree in maybe our heart, maybe our attitude. But we will say no when you tell us to come. I thank you, Lord, that you're so patient with us. Your invitation, though it's a command, is still sweet when it comes from your mouth. And I thank you, Lord, that you're working in our lives to draw us closer and closer to Yourself. Lord, thank You so much for being God and for loving us. We give You the praise for that today. In Jesus' name, Amen.